0: Hi, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a web development podcast brought to you by Log Rocket. Logrocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at logrocket.com. I'm Chris, and today we have Chris Courier here to discuss modern CSS in real life. He's a co-founder of CodePen, co-host of the Shop Talk. Podcast and founder of CSS Tricks. Welcome to the show, Chris. Yeah, double Chris is what's up? You're Chris 2.0. Ooh. So outside of that extravagant intro I just gave you, is there anything you would like to tell the audience more about yourself?
1: Oh, not really. That was a good intro. Yeah, most of my time spent on CodePen these days. It's kind of a social online web development platform kind of thing. We're gunning for a 2.0 of sorts here when we can. Got my own podcast as well, Shop Talk Show with my friend Dave. So if I sound good, it's
0: because I have a nice microphone. (laughs) You've quite the setup for sure. So I see CodePen, I see CSS Tricks. Mm -hmm. These are like very nostalgic for me, and I still use them like even to this day. Like CodePen has always been my debugging tool for like CSS more or less. Mm -hmm. And when I see like someone like when you founded these two things, it's like clearly. CSS is a big part of your life? Like, how did that happen? Like, why is CSS so important?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have CSS tricks anymore. That was a big part of my life for a long time, though. But how about the DigitalOcean? That's right. It was a little over a year and a half ago now. That was part of my, I like CSS, thus ended up kind of a... CSS blogger kind of thing. But, you know, those things kind of fuel each other. It is an interesting question to think, why is CSS so important to me? I think anybody could grow to love it. It's a fun language that allows you to, I don't know, design things on the web. The web being this just massive place that brings people together. And it's just kind of fun. And in fact, I always thought of it as like, it's both artistic and nerdy in a way. And I've always had those two kind of sides of myself, where I ended up getting a degree in college in art. So I've always been into that expressionistic side, but I've always been a computer nerd too. And CSS is the perfect language that ends up being both. And that, you know, I only discovered that kind of thinking back on my life, being retrospective about it and being like, I do like both those things. But also as a language, it's like, I don't know, you could be really into niche things, too. Nerds are great at that. In the web itself, yeah, maybe you could argue as a niche in the grand scheme of things. But if that's where we're scoped, CSS isn't niche. Every website has CSS on it. All of them. Mm -hmm. There's probably like a very tiny handful you could point to that are either ancient or somebody's intentionally trying to do something weird by not having it. But it's like not optional of all the languages out there that are meaningful to the web. Isn't that significant in a way? You know, WordPress has some massive product share or people like to talk about new, interesting frameworks. All that stuff is interesting to me too. But isn't it notable, do you think, that CSS is a part of
0: all of them? Well, it's like you basically can't avoid it. No. Even if you have a love-hate relationship, like it's always there. Like that family member you don't like maybe at a holiday party, like you're just going to run into them and have to make it work. <laughs> <laughs>
1: your that's your weird uncle or whatever yeah and there's ways to avoid it using frameworks that say hey just do your html this way use these classes and it'll turn out well that's a pretty efficient way to avoid doing i don't blame everybody not everybody can know every single thing about the web and if that's one of the things you want to punt on that's understandable but any kind of serious web team is going to need to tangle with css at some point
0: I agree. I agree. So this is something I really don't think about too much when I'm writing CSS. Like, how does modern CSS today like actually improve like the user experience for your users? Because when I write CSS, I think more of like a DX perspective, like, oh, man, like, yeah, this is so hard to do versus me actually like thinking about, you know, the person on the other side. What are like some practical examples of that?
1: It's a good point to bring up UX. Not to say versus, but let's say versus DX, that they don't have to be opposed to each other and all that. But it's true that it's like no user cares that you're using CSS Grid. Like If you like it because it makes CSS easier to write and manage and deal with, that's wonderful. But it would be a little bit of a stretch to say that the CSS Grid APIs are a direct impact on UX. Mm -hmm. Unless you're trying to paint that picture that good DX equals good UX which some people make and you know what I don't hate it sometimes I think you know if we're really efficient and doing a good job as developers thanks to good DX that it does help us deliver better UX you can also make some connections to the website being less code for example if you needed like a hide show mechanism like click this reveal this There's probably a pretty long history of the web that says, like, we're going to need JavaScript. And then who knows what tangled JavaScript you do? Like, maybe it's a very tiny amount of JavaScript. Or maybe you've chosen some big, huge framework just because you knew you would need to have some interactivity like that. And let's say all it did was turn an arrow sideways and reveal some text underneath it. And you chose a big, heavy framework to do that. And then some future version of yourself is like, oh, wait, I can just use the details element in HTML and do that instead. You could say that translates to better UX for users. Because the performance of the website is better, because you're loading less JavaScript to do that. Like, I think that picture is perfectly easy to paint. Not to mention, a lot of times when you use, you know, I'm lumping HTML into this CSS discussion too, but I feel like they're brothers or sisters, that there are some things that when you do it with just those technologies, they end up better UX too. Like, for example, in in HTML, there's a new dialogue element that... When you use it, it's kind of for showing modal experiences. They don't have to be modal. What modal implies is that it's the only thing the user can do at the moment. So for example, you hit, I don't know, command S on a website and it brings up a save dialogue and it's like, save a new version or save the other version. It wants all of your attention and there's a rectangle in the middle of the screen asking you that question. If you're doing that in a web app, there's like kind of good and bad ways to do that. But if you use the dialogue element, it's really easy to use, relatively new, it's going to do all those things for you. One of them, for example, being like focus traps, meaning that like a screen reader user has, the focus has moved into that dialogue and thus it reads like, would you like to save a copy of this dial?" Some very important message and that they can tab around in there to the options of what they might be able to do, but not leave, not accidentally tab out to somewhere else randomly on the page. It's like keeping the attention in that area where it's intended to be. That's like a, accessibility requirement that without using the native HTML dialogue element, you can do, but it's been referred to as like boss mode (laughs) in accessibility. Like it's hard to pull off. Focus traps is no joke to kind of write yourself in JavaScript.
0: So there are moments. So I didn't even think about from a UX perspective, you could effectively just load, stop, do less things in JavaScript, which makes you load less and page loads faster potentially, and then kind of just hand that off to the actual browser to do all that stuff.
1: That's becoming more and more true. It's not just like there's one little thing you can do in HTML and CSS now. There's starting to be more and more of them. Anchor positioning is relatively new in CSS. That was a really t- tricky, weird thing to have to do in JavaScript. You're constantly measuring where things are on the page and adjusting things depending on where the edges of the screen are and stuff. It tends to be a pretty heavy JavaScript thing to need to know and now anchor positioning lands in css you're like put this element by this other element got it cool no javascript involved that's a big one And when you start adding them up, it's bigger and bigger. Not to jump into too many different things, but view transitions is a relatively new one too, where you're like, I'd like this movie, when you click on it, to expand into a larger version of the movie as you go play it on a, even at a different URL, that can be done even in just HTML and CSS these days. Now that's only dropped in Chrome, but there's talk about making it one of the interoperability things for 2024. So it's not that far off, and it can be one of those big deal things that requires you to load less JavaScript for and potentially increase UX while we're at it.
0: Yeah, the view transition API, I think, is pretty insane. I didn't really know about it until Astro kind of baked it into their framework. And I was just like, what? Because obviously, like, it's an MPA or whatever. And I was like, well, you can actually, like, have these seamless transitions. So is that kind of like the trend? Like, you just think the browser is going to slowly kind of just inherit a lot of this complexity? And like you said, with, like, the anchor positioning, like, tethering elements together is like, Super annoying, like tooltips is like the bane of a lot of people's existence. You know, you're tracking the X and Y and making sure the tooltip is always like following and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, that's the web platform at its best. I think that's what they've always said that they wanted to do. There's this old phrase called pave the cow paths. And the idea was we see a lot of people are doing this. That's the cows walking along a path, right? Like everybody's implementing their own tooltip library. Look, here's 10 of them right there. It's been implemented in React 15 times. And here's a view one, and Bootstrap's got it and all this stuff. And they all do it on their own. The cow path has been paved. And then the web platform steps in and be like, okay, I see what you're doing here. We're going to help. They're going to pave it. They're going to make it the official way. That's kind of how the web platform should work. Look at what authors are doing. Okay you've proven it by doing it a lot of times now will help you.
0: I'm curious here. So there's like JavaScript changes is obviously like the TC39 that kind of like has proposals and stages. How does that work for like the browsers? Like, do they just see everyone's kind of complaining about something? Is there like this official like thing that kind of prioritizes?
1: Yeah, that's true that JavaScript has its own kind of path, doesn't it? And I think that it is different and perhaps intentionally different As far as I understand that world, people like make proposals and then they're talked about and discussed and some of them move on and some of them don't. And yeah, I think when it comes to HTML and CSS, it's a little different. I'm not super involved in that. So I don't know that I can caveat here. I don't think I can speak super intelligently towards it. But I do know that it comes from different sources sometimes. Sometimes it's authors that say, God, we really want this. Please help us. Sometimes it's browsers that just say, ah, we're going to do this. Apple's like, our new design aesthetic has lots of blurring in it. Or our new design aesthetic has reflective floors or something. And they just add something to CSS. I remember when iPhones came out that had a notch at the top. Mm -hmm. But we'd like to fill that top area with color still. In CSS, they shipped what they call basically their environment variables. It's an ENV function. And they said, you know, if you need to push something down from the top of the screen as far as tall as the notch is, you can use this value that came from them. That didn't come from authors being like, wow, what are we going to do or something? And even sometimes spec, it's a little bit more like JavaScript where spec type people that work on how the web should be, say, I've got an idea that I think could be better. So the source of it can be from anywhere. But I think there is a pretty official process to it all that has been generally respected over to the years and should be pretty applauded. If browsers literally just did whatever they want all the time with no regards for the standard process, boah, we would be in rough shape.
0: <laughs> We'd be at their mercy, <laughs> just running around and trying to adjust everything to their will.
1: Yeah, and it's possible that some of them even win. Like if Chrome has a huge amount of share, so if they were the ones who went the most rogue and said, we're going to ship something every week, some change to the web platform, it would just be a mess, because a lot of developers would just choose to use those things. And they would write code that didn't care if anybody that wasn't using those browsers could use it or not. I don't even know where we would end up. I hate to think about it because it would just be a real mess.
0: I did want to segue into transitioning from like how we used to do things to the modern way to do certain things. Like for instance, like logical properties. Mm. I'm honestly not too familiar with it. I looked into it and it kind of confused me initially how some things are named. Yeah. So I was wondering if you can talk to that and like what are the benefits?
1: I could probably do it pretty quickly. The logical property is the direction of the text flow on the page. It all starts with the text. So in English and Spanish and French and all these languages, it's top to bottom, left to right. So that left to right part is the inline direction, the top to bottom part is the block direction. Those keywords is pretty much all you need to know inline direction and block direction and if all you ever do is make english websites you're talking left to right and top to bottom with those directions so instead of writing margin right you write margin inline end and that is very weird the first time you see it and they do tend to have one-to-one matches so you don't write padding top you write padding block start you're like, that's more words. That's different than what I learned, whatever. So why would you bother with all of this? One of them is translation. And I think it's not to be ignored on the web. And it's not because your boss is yelling at you and says, hey, we're going to ship this page in French next week. It's because there's tons of tools out there that automatically do this. And I've looked at the numbers for them. There's even something like 700 million page views of just translate.google.com per month. Then there's those browsers that don't even hit that website because Chrome will just automatically translate a website. And there's a Firefox version of it. And there's another million people that use the Chrome version on Firefox. And there's all these tools that that do this job for you. And they might switch the direction of the text. For Arabic is a big example of that. It goes from left to right to left. And so if you translate a website, it will generally do a good job of changing all the words on the page, but it can screw some stuff up when the direction of the text changes. So imagine a button. The button's got an icon on it and some text. You've said you want to space the two things out. Maybe you're super hip and you're using Gap for that in Flexbox (laughs) or Grid. Okay, you win. You're great. But a lot of people and a lot of legacy code, whatever, will take that icon and say margin right of, I don't know, 0.5 rems or something. I want to space out the icon from the text good job. Margin right. You've done the job. Now you'd hit that button, translate it into Arabic. Boom, the text and the icon are now touching each other. And the margin right is now putting too much space on the right visually side of that button. It's just screwed up that button. All you had to do to fix that is not use margin right. You should have used margin inline end. That way, when you translate the website, The margin is going to push the other way against that icon. As soon as the direction of the text changes, the direction of the margins and the paddings and every other property that uses logical properties does that. So all you had to do is use that different property. So if we all just were like, you know what, I'll just use those instead. When you go to translate the website, then which people are going to do because hundreds and hundreds of millions of page views do that. They just get a better experience when they do it. Isn't that just nice? It's just an easier thing to do. And as soon as you switch your mental model to it, everybody out here has switched their mental model on some things. When you learn Flexbox for the first time, it was weird at first. And then you're like, and eh, now my brain kind of thinks, ah, I can line up boxes like that. Okay. You shed the old model and you let the new model in your brain. It's possible to do that with logical properties too. You shed your old way of thinking about properties. Welcome in the new one, which are largely just different names And you get better outcomes fits with the grain of the web in a way also the argument can be made you know how naming is hard and naming matters and like it's a little another bit of an abstract concept some of the words used in css have been kind of fixed up with logical properties and there's a little bit of like less weird things there's like overflow x or something in css which means like oh in the horizontal direction Mm -hmm. That's fine. It's not like impossible to learn that. But another way to say it is overflow in the inline direction, overflow inline. So now there's the naming of CSS, was just cleaned up a little bit while using that. So if you're learning CSS now, you'd probably learn it that way. And then the whole system of CSS just is a little more logical.
0: So I think that's like what kind of tripped me up because like I've been doing CSS for a while, so I'm used to that XY. So to clarify my understanding, inline is X, block is Y. Pretty much, yeah. That literally like confused me at first, but you know, I hate to screw this up on you. But if you change and change the
1: writing mode in CSS to a language like traditional Chinese or something that has a top to bottom uh, flow to the text, the inline direction now is why. Is it
0: kind of like the flexbox thing when you're like column or row? So then align the items is like actually different, and I have to like remember that every time. Yes, <laughs> it's
1: exactly like that. Yes, okay. that is it.
0: That is actually like when things flip based on its context is usually like I sit there and I just toggle them like hope and pray which one's right. So you mentioned like if I was using Gap for this button. So let's go back to the example you provided. You had an icon, text, and you said if I was using Gap, I'd be fine. Yeah. you said, but but some people don't use Gap. That's fine like older sites. Would you recommend the default to always be using these logical properties and never really using margin or padding straight up?
1: That's a big one. Are you saying is like gap is just nice because what gap is saying is put the space in between these two elements. I'd go so far as to say that's the correct property to use in these times. Like I think gap is an absolutely great property and that yes, it's probably a little underused for the most part, but in order to get gap, you need to be in Flexbox or grid layout. So if you just have five P tags on top of each other in a blog post it's hard for me personally still, maybe there's a shortcoming of mine, to say, oh, that should be display flex and then flex direction column. Like, it doesn't feel right to me to use flex box on just a bunch of paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Something in my brain is like, yeah, those are just block elements. Those should just sit on top of each other, which is the natural flow of the grid. And if I need to push them apart, I will do so with margin. Now, maybe I'm just old school, but margin block end feels better on them than making the whole thing use Gap.
0: I'm definitely guilty of the Gap. Like, oh, let me just use Gap and then call it a day. They'll all be evenly spread out.
1: Yeah, well, you're probably ahead of me. Gap is a great property.
0: So you mentioned like your enthusiasm around like CSS Grid. And this is something I struggle with. It's like, what are the specific scenarios where you would pick CSS Grid over like Flexbox? I feel like, I just use Flexbox for everything. It's like my like Swiss army knife. And I feel like I've been in so many situations where it hasn't let me down yet. Obviously it probably depends on my layout. So I'm curious, like your take on this, like why you pick one over the other.
1: I heard a good take on this the other day that, and it was about how sometimes there's a lot of overlap between lots of different web technologies. And the overlap isn't like a mistake. The overlap is on purpose so that there isn't gaps. Like if you made two layout mechanisms that were so different from each other, that you might leave something accidentally in the middle that you can't do. And it's like the fact that they can do some of the same stuff. I don't know. It's an abstract way of thinking about it, but it means that there aren't like layout gaps in between of something that you might want to be able to do. I'm exactly the opposite of you. I prefer to use grid and then kind of fall back flexbox it just feels a little bit more natural to me in some way there's just unique properties to both like flexbox Mm -hmm. has a lot more natural wrapping it's like if you're laying out things of like unknown size and you kind of intentionally don't care what size they are like it's a i don't know a menu and each item is just as long as the text of the menu item is and it's laying out horizontal that feels very flexboxy just let it be flexboxy. That's fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But anytime you're, I'm thinking more about like more strict layout or something like a card component, or I'm trying to set an avatar next to some text or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The chances of me being opinionated about how big that avatar is feels pretty big, you know, like that's a 150 pixel avatar, and I'm going to put it next to this big title over here. Mm-hmm. For me to set that up, I can do that from the parent level. From this div level, I can say this thing has two columns, the first one's 150 pixels, and the rest of them is just all the rest of the space on that. That feels good to me, whereas in Flexbox, I can't do that from the parent. I have to like be like, okay, that first element has a flex basis of 150 pixels or something. The children are much more like a part of the layout story in flexbox versus grid. I feel like I'm doing it all from the parent. I'm like setting up how I want the elements to fall onto that grid, and something about that feels good to me.
0: Gotcha. So then let's take it further. So there's subgrid, right?
1: Mm. Yeah. There's no sub boxes there. There's
0: so how can you explain like this? How this simplifies the grid layout, and can you like provide like examples or situations? Yeah, Yeah.
1: sure, I can. I've thought of like a recipe in the past where let's say you have this like kind of a cool looking design for a recipe that's got the title of the recipe and how long it takes to cook and an image of the thing that you're making and then steps. All those things in the cool looking layout is a grid and these things are placed in different places on the grid. The fact that each step is a list item is already like, ah, oh, snap. Because if you make a grid and then you say, okay, the title is in this cell of the grid, the image is in this cell of the grid. I can't take one of those LIs, one of those list items and say, you go into that cell of the grid Mm -hmm. because I can't because the, the parent, like the UL or the OL is in the way I can take the OL or the UL and put it into a cell of the grid. Mm -hmm. But I can't pluck up one of those LIs and put it into a cell of the grid because it's not a direct child of the grid. It's one too deep in the DOM. That's kind of where subgrid comes in in a way and it says "Ah, it's not the world's best example of this because what I just described is like you kind of wish like you could erase the UL or the OL and that's what display contents can do which has recently gotten some improvements which is nice. So that works out nicely. Subgrid kind of helps here, but subgrid isn't this massive big deal. Mm -hmm. But it is nice. What it says is if I take, let's say it's that OL and place it somewhere on that grid, it can be display grid too. So hopefully everybody out there understands that. Like when you make a grid, any given cell of the grid can also be a grid. You can nest grids all the way down. You can have as many grids within grids as you want to. But you could say, I want that cell that I've already placed on a grid to be a grid too. But I don't want to like make new lines for the grid. Every time you make a grid, you gotta say, what are the horizontal and vertical lines that make up that grid? And with subgrid, you can just punt on that and say, you know what I want those lines to be? The same as what the parents were. So if there's a line from the parent that happens to cut right through the middle of the thing, that's your grid line. So instead of having to redefine them, you just say, I don't know, just use whatever the parent grid lines were. A little hard to describe with words, it's easier to see that kind of thing. But that's all it is.
0: Right. Is it kind of like subgrid or nested grids before just didn't have any context of their parent before? Like they had no idea. So now with subgrid, it's like, oh, I have context on my parent and I'm aware of the dimensions of my parent and I can extend or go up and tall. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Gotcha. That's all it is. And it's just weird in a way that you couldn't do that
0: <laughs> before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I think whenever I use grid, I just nested flex layouts inside of it and then like did whatever. Sure. Let's talk about like component-driven development. And this is actually like something I'm pretty excited about. And this is container queries. Mm. Can you kind of talk like how they assist in creating more like adaptable, like responsive components?
1: Yeah, I think this one is, it's a pretty big deal, both for Mm -hmm. hopefully for DX and UX. But Mm -hmm. one way I've thought about it is that It's been a hot while now since JavaScript frameworks were on the market and it seems like everybody's got their favorite. There's an absolute ton of React developers out there, but Vue's got its fan and there's a super svelte fan club and there's solid people. And then there's people that will use whatever it takes for any given project because they just work at an agency. But a ton of websites, especially when you ball all of those frameworks together, it's almost weird to me that they all agree that you build things with components. None of those frameworks are like, no, we have a different way of doing things. We're going to do it this way. They're all like, no, build components and then piece them together and nest them together as you need to build a website. They're all in total agreement on that. In fact, the native web platform has a thing called web components that shares the same philosophy. You should build things in components. And I agree. I think it's a wonderful way to build products. I think it took us a while to find that as an industry, but we found it now. That's how digital products should be built in components that make sense for your product and or website, whatever it is, but they can be used anywhere. If it's like a little news component or something, you have no idea on purpose where it could be used. Like, is it over here in the sidebar? Is it down in the footer? Is it in the header? Is it in a modal? Is it whatever? In a good design system might intentionally not care might be like, I don't know, it should just be designed so that wherever it gets plopped in and used, it will be fine. The fact that you don't know where it's going to be used is fascinating. It could be on the same screen that's, let's say your browser window is open and it's right now it's 1,752 pixels wide. And the same component is appearing twice on there. One of them could be 800 pixels wide and one of them could be 200 pixels wide. And it's the same component, it's just in two different places. That means you cannot rely on an at in CSS, an at media query, to make design decisions about how that component looks. Because it's not a good proxy for that information. What is a good proxy is how big it is. And they're just, until container queries, there was no way to know that information. You couldn't write code that said, hey, when this element is 200 pixels wide, I need you to have that flex box in that column direction. I need you to do that. The only way you could do that is exotic JavaScript that measured how large it was and then passed that information somehow, some way to CSS so that it could make that thing. That was it. And now that container queries arrived, they truly have arrived too. You can use them across... Chrome, Safari, and Firefox, the big three, they're shipped. Please go ahead, use them. That is now easy to write. So rather than writing at media, you write at container and you do it. Now there's a little bit more to know, but not too much in that it's you can't style the thing that you're querying. So if you say, I'm going to test and see if this container is 200 pixels wide or wider, and then I'm going to make it red, you can't do that because you can't make The thing that you're asking how wide it is, you can't style that thing. You have to style one down the DOM. So a lot of times you just wrap it in another div. So you say dot card wrapper, that's the container. That's how wide I'm asking it. And then you style the div within it to be red or something. It's just a weird little quirk of how container queries work. But you always have to style down the DOM. You can't style the very thing that you're querying.
0: Interesting. I didn't know about that. Like an example I run into all the time is like dashboards, right? You always have different tiles on your dashboard. And it was such a pain in my life. I made a lot of dashboards in my life where people can effectively resize the panels. Right to make the dashboard customizable. And you're just like, ah, I only know how wide the browser is. And so you have to use JavaScript, like use client width or whatever. Yeah,
1: that's such an extreme example. I wouldn't have blamed anybody for using JavaScript to do the job. It's Mm -hmm. just cool that it's now in CSS and better and lighter and faster. And uh, yeah, I have a demo that has like a, a, a calendar on it. And if you have a lot of room, you can show the columns Monday through Sunday and then like put little meetings and stuff on there and think of it as like a two-dimensional grid. But it only works when there's lots of horizontal space and really vertical space. And you can write container queries in either direction. And then as it gets smaller and there's not enough room, it's like, I got to give up on the two-dimensional thing. I'm just going to smash it down into one column and I'm going to say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, vertically instead of horizontally. And it makes those choices based on the size of itself essentially just like your dashboard components you're like i don't think i can get away with a plot chart here or whatever it's just there's just not enough room i'm gonna abort and do a line chart instead or something
0: yeah so this question is like not really relevant to what we're talking about obviously it's like css and all this stuff but this is a place where i'm really ignorant in and i'm very curious to kind of have you explain it to me so you talked about like the srgb color model and the need for color models like P3 and Oklch honestly those acronyms mean really nothing to me so i'm curious like can you explain like why the srgb color model became inadequate like for me like i use srgb like all the time so i'm just curious yeah, what, am, what am i missing out on
1: i think that's a great place to start is the what am i missing rather than getting into the science of it at exactly. all. And what you're missing out on is just is colors that you can't represent any other way, which feels like a weird thing to say. But if you go back in history far enough, I think it is a little more obvious. Like you can imagine like a super old school video game or something or really early computers. And you're like, they had 16 colors and there's a little guy swinging on a rope in Jungle Hunt or whatever. You can imagine that those developers coding those super old school video games obviously didn't have billions of colors to choose from. Like, the programming languages that they had, it just wasn't available. But it's unavailable in two places. In the language that they were writing, which was rooted on the monitors that they were displaying. And those two things move forward in time independently. So the first thing that happens is that new monitors are built, and those new monitors now can have hundreds of colors then the language needs to be adapted to make sure that it has some way of expressing what those hundreds of colors now are so they just move in parallel a little bit and they don't move in sync necessarily it's like why would we update the language if you know if the monitors aren't ready for it well you probably should run ahead a little bit But that's happened to us now. So at one point, for example, hex codes got really popular as a way in the language to describe a color. Mm -hmm. And the sRGB color space was so big and so good that it covered all monitors for a super long time. Until it didn't. Until monitors started to be shipped that can show colors way outside of the sRGB color space. And it already happened under our feet. So if you have a pretty nice phone, pretty much any phone, but you imagine you bought the new iPhone or something, and you take a picture of the sunset, that photo, when you're looking at it on that screen, is totally not beholden to the sRGB color space. It is already way beyond that, and it looks freaking great on your phone, right? But if you use a color picker and grab an orange off of it or something, it's just some magic is going to happen that pulls it back down into the sRGB color space and it's just going to be some lame not bright and vibrant sunsetty color to it that's just how color models work because they need to because it can't just show nothing like that's just like a bad place for color to be so there's mechanisms in place that pull colors back down into the the spaces that they can do so the web decides hey we better catch up Let's make a new color space called P3 that's more capable of displaying the colors that are already being captured by things. Again, I wanna throw up a flag and say I'm not like a super color guy. I'm sure I'm gonna say dumb crap, I probably already have, but this is just my understanding of it. So if you're gonna use a hex code on the web, it's in the sRGB color space and there's nothing you can do about that. It probably will never change. It will just be an SRGB forever. But in CSS, we're like, but I want access to those more vibrant colors. And you would be able to tell, even if you're not a designer, even if you're not a color guy, even if you're not whatever, if you look at a vibrant pink in the P3 color space and compare it to the most vibrant pink you can in the SRG color space, you'll say, wow. You'll say, holy crap, that's way pinker. (laughs) <laughs> it's just is your monitor is just capable of displaying colors that are just wh- and, and they're all up there in the vibrant space there's no like black or black there's no gray or gray that's not in p3 p3 is all up it's all up. brighter more vibrant greener greens bluer blues it's all in the extra wah category so how do you get a p3 color you just need to use new css to get it So you mentioned OKCLH, that one's just been popular. I like it too. It's just one of the functions that gives you access to the colors that happen to be in P3. Now this gets a little weirder in that the color space is P3, but the color model is LCH in that case. And they're just like, the space is like all the possible colors and the model is how mathematically they choose to design the model. And that's weird to think about. Remember the HSL, that's like an old schooler way to do colors in CSS.
0: It was like hue saturation luminance lightness something? lightness I lightness
1: <laughs> okay right so let's say you have a color in css using that which is in the srgb color space in the last number is lightness and it said 50% and you changed it to 75% you'd see the color get lighter mm-hmm. that's like a desirable attribute of a color model like i can now programmatically do that lch is just like that lightness chroma and hue if i want to change the lightness of a color in that model i just change that first number so it has that desirable attribute of it it's just that the other numbers chroma and hue are now capable of displaying brighter and more colors okay is i don't even know what it means it's just an improvement on the lch model it's very weird i would just ignore it it just is slightly better so people like it more but it has this other cool thing if you had a blue color In HSL, the old school one, and you cranked up the lightness 10%, it'll become lighter. But if you do that on green or something, and then you jack it up another 10%, perceptually, the difference in the lightness might feel different. I know that's weird to think about, but you might just be like unhappy with how the green is and like the blue. And then you'd be like, crap, I guess I need to go up 13% or something Mm -hmm. to get it to feel like they've both made about the same jump. With OKLCH, that's not the case. They just did epic amounts of research that if you take two colors, any two colors, and you jack up their lightness by 10%, they will feel 10% lighter both.
0: That's important. That's very
1: important. (laughs) It is. It's just good. It's just a big deal. So not only do you get access to all these additional colors, but for design system work, the color model display behaves better and then there's one more it's that you can imagine like weird bumpy mountains that's the color model that they've taken all these colors and mapped it to and they extreme color nerds made that model on purpose because in the 3d space that represents all those colors in css when you make a gradient say hey make a gradient from red to blue the way that it does that is it just plots a line in math from one color to the other color a straight line different color models that line goes through different crap in srgb it has a really bad habit of going through gray on the way because there's this big ball of gray in the middle of, you can imagine a color wheel or the vibrant stuff's on the outside and the gray's in the middle it has a bad habit of going through gray so a lot of the gradients in rgb not all of them but a lot of them just look worse because they desaturate in the middle of a gradient. Whereas in these other models, an OKLCH is OK. I prefer lab. That's another one of these fancy seasons. The way gradients look is just way more natural. Like you, we can look at a gradient going from red to blue and you'll be like, yeah, that looks about right. It looks about how your brain thinks those two colors should go between each other. And then you like go look at an sRGB and you're like, oh, why did you do that? that's weird so now that's a new thing in css you can do is you can say hey do a gradient do it from red to blue but do it in the lab color model because it's just going to do another job it's just an additional thing you can pass the gradient function that says what color space to do it in and it just looks better
0: so like today i learned that i am missing out on a lot of things and i need to check those out (laughs) because i think the example that really clicked for me is like if you take a picture of a sunset it just looks yeah like it looks right i'm like okay i didn't haven't really thought about it like in that space. So I think that makes like so much more sense.
1: Well, here, was one more then. It's not different, but it's going to be how things play out. There's been leaps forward on the web where it's the stuff of old looks old. Like remember before high density screens. Mm-hmm. And then there was a period where more and more and more people had monitors that had tighter pixels, you know, a higher density display. And then if you used like little tiny icons or something, that weren't really designed for that. They just looked a little blurry and crappy. And you just be like, that website looks old. There's just like a little feeling you had that's just like, ugh, you know, everything's blurry and bad. That might happen with colors on the web. As more and more websites take advantage of the new color spaces that are available to us, I think there's a chance that websites that aren't doing that look drab. They have this like, "Mm, uh uh-oh, that's just a little old looking. I don't know if that will pan out exactly like that because it's a little more abstract. But you can tell, you know, designers have called it a secret weapon. If you're selling some bold yellow product, if you're using this incredible P3 yellow color like Panic that has done, they sell this cool gaming device that's yellow. Their website is bold and vibrant that it, it can affect you psychologically. Looking at that yellow website, you're like, man. That is exciting.
0: I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy is. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. I wanted to close this out on this last question. Let's talk about what trends do you anticipate in the world of modern CSS and how do you see it shaping the future of web development?
1: That's a lot of stuff. I think view transitions is going to be a big deal. I think it's going to be become part of the CSS toolbox of what people learn. They're going to say like, oh, When this URL moves to this URL, when this page becomes this page, I need to sit and think about like, what do I want to move over and how, and I can say that feels like a desktop trend because next time you use your phone, just think for a second, how much stuff is moving when you click around and do stuff? Mm-hmm. And the answer is a ton. <laughs> an absolute ton. You open an app, it moves. You click to another page in the app, it opens up or it slides or it does something. The mobile web, and less of the web, but native mobile, everything moves. I think we're just going to see a lot more movie web in the future. And you got to be a little bit more careful on desktop because there's just a lot more screen real estate. Nobody wants... <laughs> Motion sickness. <laughs> Yeah, nobody wants 2000 pixels sliding all the way to the left. You'd be like, "Ah!" it'll be more (laughs) subtle, but I think more and more that will just become the job of CSS is to think about which objects move and which objects don't and how I want that to work and view transitions is going to power all that. Colors are going to get a lot more vibrant components already rule the web, but they're going to be more and more in that way and they're generally going to be styled with component queries. I think it's probably possible that a website that's entirely built with components has only component queries in use on it. Now that's important to think about too, that we also have access to container units as part of container queries, which means that now I can do things like size the type inside of a component based on how big the component is. We've had access to viewport units and CSS, like make a rectangle that's as tall as the browser window is. Those same kind of units exist for container queries how much is one height of this container? That's a CQB, I think. Container query in the block direction. Uh, A CQI uh, is a container query unit in the inline size. See how we've connected it to logical properties too?
0: That's awesome, I did not know about that.
1: It's a good one for typography people.
0: Cool, anything else that you wanna add to that list? I am pretty excited for the view transition stuff, though, for sure.
1: I'm uh, just saying, test it all out on CodePen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there you go. Where where can we find you? Anything you want to plug?
1: Yeah, that's all. I blog on my personal site, and I'll link you to everything else that I do, which is mostly CodePen.
0: Awesome. Chris, so I'll call you Chris 2.0. It was a pleasure talking to you. I've learned a lot. So thank you for coming on.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.